Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome back to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. This week, we're joined by Darren Jones. Darren is the MP for Bristol North West. He serves on the Science and Technology Select Committee, chairs the Parliamentary Tech Forum and Labour Digital, and has worked hard on digital issues in Parliament since being elected in 2017. He joined me in the studio just before Christmas to talk about how MPs use WhatsApp, Facebook and other digital communications tools, the prospect of data philanthropy emerging in the future, and whether we need a reprise for the concept of the white heat of technology. Darren, thanks very much for joining me. My pleasure. Uh, I wanted to ask first, before we get into talking about technology and politics and all the usual government versus the robots stuff, <laughs> uh, you're the first elected representative to join us on government versus the robots. So uh, I should give my thanks to the people of Bristol Northwest for, <laughs> for, for setting you on the journey in this direction. Um, but I was wondering if you could tell me when you first decided you wanted to be an MP. Do you know, it's a good question. I, um, uh, so I, I grew up in a pretty poor working class background in my constituency. And... Um, for some reason, maybe genetics or otherwise, I've always had a view about stuff, uh, and I wanted to change things. I didn't. It didn't occur to me to do politics when you're kind of a kid, right? But I always wanted things to be better, essentially. And you can kind of do that in two ways when you're poor. You can either become rich yourself um, and sort it out for yourself and your family, or you can kind of go off in politics and want to change the world. And you know, I've tried to straddle the two, and I worked really hard, and I became a lawyer. So you know, I'm I'm comfortable now. But you know, I wasn't somebody that's just going to pull the drawbridge up behind me. And so, you know, one thing's led to another over the last ten years, and here I am. And when you were training to do law, was politics something that was on the horizon, or did you have a kind of moment where you thought, do you know what, actually, I'm going to switch this up? Uh, uh, politics was always active alongside everything. In fact, it was a bit tricky at times to straddle a professional career and politics, and you had to kind of reassure you know, partners and stuff at law firms that you were committed to your career in law. And actually, I really enjoy being a lawyer and I love my job. Um, but, you know, I was running in unwinnable constituencies. I was helping run leadership campaigns. I helped run mayoral campaigns. You know, so I was always off doing other bits and pieces. Um, so it's always been alongside whatever it is that I've been up to. Now, I sometimes make pronouncements on the show about w- when a particular episode has been broadcast or will be broadcast. So for the benefit of listeners, we're recording this a couple of days before <laughs> Christmas. I'm anticipating that you'll be listening to it and people will be listening to it at some point in February. But my question is to ask you about how you perceive how politicians are using technology. Because this week, we've seen MPs waving mobile phones in front of the Speaker um, in order to try and make a point about whether or not Jeremy Corbyn uttered the words stupid woman under his breath during Mm. uh, a debate in Parliament. And I wanted to ask you how well you think your colleagues in Parliament understand technology. 
Well, I suppose there's two different bits there. There's one in terms of understanding technology and all the great stuff going on and what that means for kind of public policy. And the understanding level isn't great, to be honest. Um, and then there's how do we use technology as MPs to do our jobs as, as MPs. And, uh, you know, one of the amazing things when you get elected is essentially, you know, the main tool you get given is a House of Commons letterhead. Uh, and it's kind of been done in the same way for hundreds of hundreds of years. And you don't really have budgets to innovate. So it's quite tricky to do that. I mean, in my constituency, we've been doing as much as we can. We've got a private mobile app for constituents called Powered By You. The idea is that I'm powered by my constituents. Um, it's, it's working, but it's hard to differentiate a bit between Facebook. We get very good Facebook engagement as well. Um, I do a weekly Facebook Live from Westminster every Wednesday night when the House is sitting and explain how I voted and why and do a live Q&A. That works really well. But the demographics on Facebook are interesting. You don't get young people on Facebook anymore and not everyone's on it. Uh, we're launching our own podcast, not to compete with you guys, but um, in the new year called Policy Pods. And the idea is that constituents could submit questions where they want to know the answer in a bit more detail and my researcher will go off to the House Commons Library or wherever it is and come back and we have a chat a bit like this that just goes into a little bit more detail over 15 minutes to answer why something is the way it is so we keep trying to do new things and they they seem to work quite well all of those sound like great ideas and um we're not competitive in the podcast ecosystem so <laughs> policy pod will be a welcome uh, welcome joiner but the that's all about kind of how you use technology to reach constituents mm. um and obviously politicians find themselves in a position where they're also being asked to regulate technology or think about technology and how it affects constituents mm. um, and my sense watching some of the conversations on various committees around talking about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and so on mm -hmm. is that the average MP were there such a thing probably isn't thinking about this as hard as I might like them to be um, can you reassure me that some politicians are thinking about this deeply or am I you know should I be out pushing harder for them to think about it more so some of them are i am um but it is seen as a bit kind of like a niche geeky thing people look at me and say oh well darren does the digital wizardry stuff so no no this is about everything and the pace of change that technology is driving in our economy and the way we could deliver our public services better and what it means in terms of defense and national security or our democratic systems the way that we operate in the world all of that's driven by technological reform um but the debate just isn't anywhere near understanding how that means and Westminster much like other legislations are legislators sorry are, a bit, are quite slow um, and I my biggest concern is we just can't keep up at the moment with understanding technologies and then being able to debate them and then come up with the public policy solution so we've got a lot of work to do so my sense on that is that actually it's impossible to keep up speed with technology mm. because technology is moving at the speed of collective human creativity. Mm. So the idea that we can keep up to speed with it, I think you know, it's probably always been the case that with any innovation in society of any form, that the envelope is pushed before regulation, regulators can react. Mm. And so, but being more aware of how things are changing and trying to predict the future and having the right channels of exchange between different industries and parliament and so on, I would agree that we're well behind. I wonder how you think the houses of parliament as an institution are getting on with using technology. I mean, when I, in the ancient mists of time, when I used to work there, nobody was able to tweet from the chamber. Yeah. Uh, you know, you couldn't take video coming out of parliament was a was a foreign thing. Um, and nobody was really thinking digital at all I and mean, have things changed since then they've got a bit better we've got wi-fi now uh, we didn't have that until fairly recently um and it's not great but it kind of works um you know a lot of politics is done on whatsapp these days uh, which has pros and cons to it to be honest um and you'll see mps constantly on their phones in the house of commons chamber these days whether for good or bad um but beyond kind of communications and a little bit of social media i'm not sure there's anything particularly exciting happening is there anything you'd like to see happening 
I would love to see how we engage constituents in the democratic process better. So a lot of the stuff that I'm doing with the podcasts and the app and everything isn't just about me pushing out information because I think that's quite boring. Actually, it's about trying to engage my constituents in politics and bring Westminster as close to their lives as possible so they feel empowered within our democratic systems. And I would love to see us doing a bit more of that uh, in the House Commons. And moving on from that, you've written quite a lot um, of interesting pieces for the New Statesman. Hmm. And one of the things you've talked about is the need for conversations about ethics around technology. And I've sort of tried to steer away from talking too much about ethics on this podcast, partly because I think it's impossible to come up with kind of practical answers sometimes. And there's always a grey area where ethics are concerned. But why are you particularly interested in talking about tech ethics? Well, one of the challenges for, you know, parliamentarians is that our main tools are essentially laws and regulation. Uh, And primary legislation is not a great way to deal with this subject. Um, We've seen that with the passing of the Data Protection Act, you know, it's kind of already out of date, really, in terms of the way we use technology. Um, But I'm I'm someone that's really conscious that, you know, it's also our job to protect consumers and citizens and the functioning of our economy and thinking about equality and redistribution and all of that type of stuff. Um, And that is invariably now a question of ethics you know what are the boundaries around the use of some of these technologies that we think we need to put in place how does how does old law around competition law for example work in a new setting where consumers aren't paying for things but they're paying for things with their data as opposed to money so the ethical questions i think are really important now tech ethics is you know zeitgeist for the consultancy conferences at the moment and you know people talk about it a lot the stuff that i'm trying to work on in parliament as the co-chair of our cross-party parliamentary commission on technology ethics is to think about some of the real practical things that we can do whether that's about what regulators we have in place and what powers they have whether they need to change um, and whether there are any gaps below primary legislation but in a way that means that citizens know that we've got their back if something goes wrong or is likely to go wrong and what are your instincts about where the kind of the the problem or solution areas are on that those questions well i mean you alluded to it ethics is really difficult right a lot of it's subjective and it requires parliament to come to a view as to what is okay and not okay in the uk and of course there's no point in talking about just the uk because these are global platforms uh and you know we might have a a haven of something in the UK but it doesn't mean there's going to be bad stuff going on around the world and inherently this goes to the heart of the big political friction in these you know these days which is the the friction between globalized markets and globalization and the power of national parliaments to be able to do things to affect citizens lives and technology is right at the heart of that and so you need global collaboration on these issues which is really really difficult to do as we've seen with the attempts on the digital sales tax or digital services tax from the treasury here and from the European Commission And so I don't know what the answers are. Um, What I do know is that we need to understand the technology and talk about it and collaborate as much as possible globally to try and move the agenda along. And that's what I'm trying to trying to do. I'm not going to ask you whether you think technology companies have been unethical, because I think that's a difficult question for me to ask you. Well, I think they have. Well, you've answered it. (laughs) In what way? Well, I mean, we're starting to see a lot of the stuff coming out from Facebook, which I just think is deeply disappointing. You know, I'm a tech evangelist. I was somebody that was kind of up there on the mantle in the kind of Obama era of being like, wow, we can use technology to fix all of our global problems. For, For a while, I thought maybe I need to go to Silicon Valley instead of Westminster if I really want to affect the lives of the people I care about at home and, you know, around the world. But we got a bit of this tech backlash going on now. And, you know, people are starting to get a bit worried about the conflict between profit motives uh, and good. And, you know, that's not a tech thing. That's been around forever. 
And that's why politics has an important role to play in that. But we've got to get it right. You know, we can't hamper innovation. We don't want to have an impact on the digital economy where people do it elsewhere because it's good for British jobs and British industry. Um, but we've got a bit more work to do. And a lot of the revelations that are coming out around data monopolies or the use of data without transparency and consent or um, turning a blind eye to some of the negative effects of these global platforms and the scale and speed at which fake news or whatever it might be can be distributed says to me that some companies have either been um, uh, maliciously unethical or just not paying attention and either way there's a role for government and regulators there to fix it. And as a parliamentarian do you get the sense that tech companies are taking their responsibilities seriously? They're starting to and some of them have been better than others. I'm not going to list them. Um, but my problem, so for example, we're doing a social media inquiry on the Science and Technology Select Committee. Uh, we recently had a panel of lobbyists from the tech industry on transparency reporting. You know, how many posts do you take down? What do you do if someone reports bullying or self-harm? And essentially, they're all pretty good now at the things that are clearly illegal. So, you know, terrorism, child sexual exploitation and that type of stuff. Some of them are better than others at reporting the stats in real time. Others are hiding them a bit. But you get into the harder stuff like online bullying and self-harm. And, um, you know, there's some uh, on certain platforms, you know, secret groups pushing out awful things that you can't see. And, you, you know, you say to these tech companies, what are you doing about that? They're not doing much, to be honest. And that's because it's not mandatory. And we've kind of got to get this gap filled where if you want voluntary regulation, you need to go the extra mile. And if you don't do that, then it's going to have to be mandatory regulation. And is it fair to look at to take something like bullying, which is an emotive subject and for good reason for many, many people. But it's something that happened before Facebook. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's something that has always existed in some way, shape or form because it's about the nature of relationships between people. And the the fact that Facebook enables it at the moment, other pockets of society that existed previously have enabled bullying behaviours to exist, whether that's culture in schools or behaviour of teachers or whatever it might be. Mm. So how much responsibility do you think we should be laying at the door of Facebook versus perhaps laying at the door of other institutions or individuals for those sorts of behaviours? I mean, look, I don't blame Facebook for the woes that people have in this country. We've seen increases in physical crimes, in murders, in knife crime, in drug um, county border issues, in domestic violence. You know, that's not because Facebook is providing a social media platform. The point, though, is that these platforms provide a scale and volume and speed and kind of continuous um, uh, channel in the way that it didn't happen before. So, you know, we had kids in our select committee inquiry, they kind of made the point that, or the teachers did, you know, old school bullying, you'd go home and you kind of it'd be over with until you went back the next day and maybe the teachers could help figure it out or whatever. You know, when you're on, when you've got WhatsApp or Snapchat or Facebook and it's just constant and constant and constant, that's new and it's because technology has disrupted bullying. Um, and again, there's a public policy question there about how we fix it. And those those companies have got a responsibility. It's not just Facebook. The technology stuff is changing, you know, human relationships in bad ways in other spaces too. You know, I won't go into the detail, but, you know, there's been some really um, uh, sad instances of leaks from MP WhatsApp groups about things that really shouldn't be leaked, not politics, but like personal stuff to, to journalists. And then people started to distrust each other because no one knows who leaked it. And if it's as easy as screenshotting something and sending it on an encrypted message to a journalist, that really starts to break down human relationships in a way that kind of didn't happen in the same way before. So we've got a lot to learn about how we use these things in our lives, I think. And what you're kind of touching on is the way in which technology has actually disrupted us yeah. and our relationships and is changing what it is 
to be human which mm. i think is a fascinating deep philosophical question that yeah. we probably don't have time to, <laughs> to cover in this particular conversation and um, i know you're very frustrated at times with the data protection bill you've already alluded uh, to it can uh, you explain why you were so frustrated i was a bit gutted you know because i, I mean i'm a i'm a geeky lawyer right um and um i was asked by tom watson our, our shadow secretary of state because he knew that i had a background in this to you know, join the teams both in the Lords and the House Commons on the opposition side to talk about how we would approach the bill, what type of stuff we might want to get in there, uh, to then be on the bill committee to do the line by line analysis. You know, and I took that that job, it wasn't an official job because I keep breaking the whip on Europe, but I took that role seriously. Um, and in a loyally way, you know, I got it all printed out, put it in a bundle, had my copy of GDPR from Europe, you know, cross referenced, highlighted, had my amendments with solid arguments behind them, you know, went to the bill committee and basically pretty much everybody else not just on the government side but on other sides too uh just kind of rocked up because they were told they had to be there the debate was not great it wasn't that uh insightful and because governments don't like to lose votes in committee even amendments that you know i thought were pretty good were rejected now if i wasn't so much of a rookie i would have perhaps gone to the ministers beforehand and tried to have the debate about justifying the position and they would have tabled the amendments themselves and maybe we would have supported them so there was lessons for me there as well um but the level of debate and this and the kind of vision around this stuff just wasn't wasn't there in the legislative process and the irony is i had more influence affecting the legislation the drafting of legislation as a lawyer uh, with some lobbying on the side from private practice than I have so far as a member of parliament. I just thought that was not not great, really. And what what were the amendments you would have liked to have seen that never happened? Oh, a few. I mean, w one of the key ones for us was the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, um, which is a kind of uh, an advisory group now within the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sports. I wanted to put that on a statutory footing. I wanted to give it a proper budget and scope. I wanted it to be in the cabinet office. So it wasn't just about DCMS, but it was about the whole of government. Um, and that, that, that wasn't accepted. And my concern now is that you know, they're a very small team, they're welcome, but they have to bid for funding for every project from the Treasury, uh, you know, as the ministers change. So, you know, Matt Hancock was the Secretary of State before and he's interested. Jeremy Wright clearly isn't, you know, it's kind of at the whim of ministers. And I just worry about what the effect of that will have in terms of actually impacting on public policy. We wanted to put stuff in there around um, children and digital bill of rights. Uh, you know, because we're supposedly leaving the European Union, we'll find out when we listen to this podcast in February <laughs> what, what's been happening on that. Um, the government has been actually taking away European-derived rights that have an impact in this space. We wanted to put those back, uh, and they were all rejected too. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And when we think about how citizens use their data, one of the ideas that I like is that we could all be using our data collectively for good rather than having companies use it for whatever they feel like using it for. Mm. Um, and one of the things that strikes me is, is this example's come up on a few episodes, but the, when we tried to digitize NHS <laughs> records a little while ago and there was absolute uproar, yeah. and when we've had conversations about citizen ID cards, mm-hmm. for example, again, ID cards, there was uproar. And actually, you know, the state has tried a few times in the last decade or so to try and use data in a way that delivers public goods. Um, and there tends to be a resistance to that. So do you think that there's a challenge to people to, if, if they don't like people using their data for the wrong reasons, to be a bit more open to the idea of people using their data for the right reasons? Yeah, and there's been some good examples of that. You know, the late Dame Tessa Jowell, who, you know, passed away recently, you know, kickstarted this idea of data philanthropy in terms of donating her health data for research purposes to try and find cures to the type of cancer that she sadly suffered from. People kind of buy into that pretty pretty easily, and that's great. That's kind of a bottom-up approach to it. I mean, you know, the, the idea of a centrally held ID system is crucial, actually, to delivering a lot of government digital services. You know, government digital services has done some good stuff. Uh, they don't get as much political support now, which is shame but you know i've got like i don't know seven different what are they called utrs unique reference numbers to try and get onto my tax system or my uh, car tax system or my past i I always have to get a new one because none of the time things work actually if there was a centrally held id system you know with one login uh, life would be much easier in delivering a lot of this stuff. You know, you look at places like, you know, Estonia, and everyone always talks about Estonia, but they have horizontal data rights there. So if the health service says to them, hey, Darren, we want to get uh, your address uh, or your date of birth, but another department has it, you can refuse and say, well, actually, government already has that, use it from the central database. And that means the delivery is much easier. But fundamentally, you know, there's a challenge because constituents aren't really interested in this stuff unless they're interested in it. It doesn't come up in my coffee mornings or on the doorstep, right? They want people to have their back if things go wrong. But essentially, there's a debate that needs to be had about ownership of data as an asset and how we how we share the value that's monetized off the back of that data. And we're so far from that in Parliament at the moment. I mean, Chian Wu has been talking about it for years, but apart from her, Liam Byrne's been talking a bit about it, who tried to bring in the ID card system when we were last in government. Um, we're just not in that that space. And I think that's ultimately where we need to try to end up. And you've uh, referenced, without going too far down a kind of Labour history hole, it's not just Labour history, it's national history. Um, and I should point out, with great thanks to Darren for being here, if there, if anybody has any suggestions for Tory representatives to come and talk on this issue, we're all ears and they're very welcome here in the studio. Um, you referenced Harold Wilson's speech in which he talked about the white yeah. heat of technology yes. yeah. um, and the need for Britain to adapt to a, to a new and emerging world. And yeah. maybe you drew some parallels with current events is that fair yeah i was i was being a little mischievous in that speech to be honest 
uh, on purpose. Um, because, in, you know, in some parts of the Labour Party today, much like in other political parties, unless you sign up to the kind of, I don't know, the Bible of whatever the current position is, you're kind of shouted down a bit. I just think that's not good for democracy. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I don't come from the Marxist part of the Labour Party. I come from the Fabian bit. And to go to my point earlier about the friction between global markets um, and the friction between national parliaments being able to help people, my argument is you can do two things. Um, you can either try to nationalise those markets and those global forces, um, or you can try to collaborate better globally. Uh, and my point in that speech, trying to bring together the Wilson stuff in terms of our economic opportunities in the UK, was to say, well, actually, you're not going to nationalise Amazon in the UK and do deliveries entirely by a state-owned delivery network. It's just not going to happen. So you can't nationalise your way out of these challenges. That might be official government policy. Well, because <laughs> nothing can get in and out. There will be no, <laughs> there will be no deliveries, uh, turnips for everybody from your backyard. So I was, I was being a bit mischievous in, on purpose, playing devil's advocate with the position of my leadership in the Labour Party. I don't disagree with nationalising as a policy completely. I think there are some sectors where that would work uh, importantly. But my argument is it can't, it can't just be the answer to the, to the problems that we're facing. But one of the points that Wilson was making is around the need for Britain to adapt and face, yeah. face those challenges. Do you think there are opportunities for Britain in the current state of technological flux that we find ourselves? Huge, huge opportunities. I mean, we're very, very good in the UK at fundamental research. That's why we're so strong at the moment in artificial intelligence. We're really, really bad at commercialising our research. Uh, and what tends to happen is we'll get some good startups, some good university spin-outs, um, and then they'll get bought essentially by bigger VC funds or firms overseas. There's technology transfer to other countries and then they commercialise that. Uh, and, you know, regardless of what happens on Brexit, I think the role that Britain has to play in this space in terms of research and ideas and entrepreneurship, uh, the culture around that, but also around the ethics and the safety and everything else, I think we have a really strong opportunity in the world to drive that really hard but um we've got to get it right and that's why we've got to be at the forefront of this technological age and put the right policies in place to embrace it and you wear a number of hats in different roles in parliament related to technology in different ways science and technology committee chair of the parliamentary technology forum mm. i think you chair labor digital which yep. is the labor party conversation um what's going on in all those different forums at the moment that people who are kind of trying to keep a close eye on what's happening in the political space um should be keeping an eye out for do you know it's really interesting and, and all of those things that you mentioned and a few others is trying to build a bridge between what goes on in the house of commons chamber and what's going on in the real world uh, and a lot of it actually is just about trying to help politicians understand you know what this stuff is really i mean on the on pick four the parliamentary ict forum horrible name but it's a legacy issue um you know we essentially just do dinners panel discussions roundtables uh where we bring tech industry members in to talk to politicians about you know what is 5g uh what's what's needed to deliver it what are the potential benefits of it what are the risks of it on the science and technology select committee uh historically that's always had a kind of heavy focus on the science. So it's always been kind of universities, you know, royal institutes and kind of research councils. And one thing that I've been doing is just trying to balance out our name a bit to do more of the tech stuff. So we've been looking at algorithms and genomics and data, and we're doing one on digital government at the moment. We've got a new one coming up on technology applications for meeting climate change objectives. Uh, and that's really about getting the cross-party clerked evidence-based policy output 
which then helps other colleagues refer to that and have an impact on government policy. Labour Digital is the same. We're kind of in startup phase at the moment. But the idea is that basically we upskill our Labour Party colleagues um, on these issues and we get people in to help us think about some of the policy questions that we need to understand, but also how we deliver our public policy objectives through the use of technology. And it's a testing time at the moment here at the end of 2018 (laughs) for... People whose political views come from the Fabian wing of the Labour Party yeah. rather than the Marxist wing of the Labour Party. Yeah. Um, can you think of some moments in the last year that have given you genuine cause for hope or inspiration, preferably on this agenda, yeah. but failing that on any agenda? Uh, my hesitation is because it's been quite a challenging year. I mean, I've only been an MP for 18 months, right? I have to say, having spent 10 years trying to get elected to the place, um, and then finally getting there, it was a bit depressing. Um, politics changes, there's flows and all that type of stuff. But our two-party political system is struggling to cope with these things like Brexit. You know, the populism is affecting all of us in different ways. We're in the middle of something that's quite disruptive in politics. I don't know what that means or what the outcome will mean. But, you know, I come from a, a time looking at politics where it was stable, majority government, kind of pretty pragmatic progressive center ground stuff and you know people will vehemently disagree with me about that and say that's a bad thing and it's not good for people and you know I respect their views on that but it's not where I come from um, and that does all sometimes mean it means that you're not really made very welcome but I'm pretty stubborn uh, and for as long as I have the trust of my constituents and my constituency party I'm going to keep making making the case from the, the back benches has there been anything that's given me hope nothing specifically so far what's the best thing that's going on in bristol oh there's tons of great stuff going on in bristol in fact my slightly poorly edited christmas message uh, has been focused entirely on the things going on at home in bristol because when you've had a crap week in westminster and you get back to the constituency and i you know i work really hard in my constituency we kind of do 12 hour days pretty much every friday and saturday that's the bit that really re-energizes you about being an MP, actually, um, and reminds you the kind of importance of that constituency link, whether it's, you know, our ability to help people in my surgeries uh, or whether it's going along and supporting people that are doing great things, whether it's on housing or all of the volunteers, sadly, the fact that we need these food banks, but there's huge amounts of generosity going on. You know, I was at a Christmas thing the other day where the area where I was born and grew up, which is still pretty poor, you know, volunteers have put on this amazing event with all these kids involved. And it was just, it just inspires you really. And it's, they fuel me in wanting to carry on doing it. I could have a much, you know, quieter, easier life going back to doing my legal job and having weekends off, but there is still something to fight for. And our political process is the way in which you change the world, regardless of how hard it is. And so you just got to keep at it, really. Well, for me, having sat and watched many people in this chair bemoan the lack of political attention on these issues, um, it is for me a nice point on which to end the year to talk to somebody who uh, is inside the political institutions we have bemoaned so often uh, <laughs> and is trying to do something about the current state of play. So thanks very much for coming and talking. My absolute pleasure. So that's all for this week. As I mentioned in the show, if you know politicians from other political persuasions that would like to join us on Government versus the Robots, we're very open to that. As always, you can contact us on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore V-S underscore robots if you particularly enjoyed this episode please do subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on tell your friends about the show and as ever my thanks to sky redmond for her help with the editing and production of this podcast imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.